Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. I am Luke Mason, and I am really excited today because I'm finally back to Harry Potter. It's been forever. No David, though. I've been joined by a couple of um, more Harry Potter indigenous friends, I suppose. I forget how to pronounce your last name, Lydia, so please. (laughs) What's your name again? Um, My name is Lydia Rollinson. Who's David? David is my cousin, Ah. who has co-hosted approximately 80 of these episodes. And but not the Master and Commander episode. Not the Master and that Commander, that was yeah. me, That's Dan true. Holder. Ah, returning friend of the pod, Dan Holder. <laughs> and, sorry, Rollinson. Rollinson, yes. No G. No, okay. R-O-L-L-I-N-S-O-N. Nice. I often begin these with a funny question, um, tangentially related to the uh, work of fiction we're talking about today. So I was, I honestly, it took me a couple hours today to think what's the right order of the Phoenix question to ask, but I got it. So here it is. Prior to your 17th birthday, what was your preferred form of underage magic? <laughs> uh, snogging girls in the alley, really wet kisses. Where's the magic? Where's the magic? <laughs> I think it was maybe not magic for them. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. But magic for Dan. Okay, that's a good answer. What about you? What's your preferred form? Before I was seven, I would say, so I went to... A, like a reasonably strict all-girls school until mm. I was 16. So I, I never went out. I never. I was a bit of a SWAT. A SWAT. A SWAT, sorry. That is a very Harry Potter term. For, I, think <laughs> it, it I think it's in the book somewhere. It okay. means a, like a nerd. Hermione, like, Hermione's a SWAT. Yeah, she's a, she's a SWAT. Oh. So well, I probably wouldn't have been, been doing much. underage magic because I would have been that too much. That. So there's no answer. Until, and then I went, and then I, when I was 17, I went to a very large mixed school and got up to all sorts of hijinks but that was post okay you know what i'm gonna give an addendum to this then what's your <laughs> what was your preferred form of overage magic overage magic i don't know whether we're talking real life or what there's the magic i would have liked to have done running through a field of wheat i think isn't it <laughs> that's a reference that no one who listens to this will get done a field of wheat no let's do you, that is such a tangent you need to cut this out we're not going down there <laughs> we don't have to talk about it but i'm not cutting it out okay <laughs> I think, I, I guess that counts as an answer. <laughs> so I'll take it. Fly, I lived in the middle of nowhere, so it would have been flying around okay. on my broom, sneaking out oh. to go have fun with my newly found male friends and female friends. But the men were new. <laughs> the men were new. I think we, well, at this point, we got that answer surrounded. So, for my part, my favorite form of underage magic, I didn't really know what girls were. So it probably would have been playing Halo with my friends mm. all night, both Halo and Halo 2. Mm-hmm. I think that was my favorite. Rock and roll. Well, anyway, if you made it this far, congratulations. It has been a long time coming to do Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Uh, as listeners of this podcast will know, we have done the first four, but there was like, 
we did the first two like within about a month of each other. And then the third one, like two months later. And then it took about a year (laughs) to get Goblet of Fire done. And this one is like a year and a half later. And I have actually read Order of the Phoenix three times now in preparation for potentially recording (laughs) this podcast. (sighs) So does that mean I'll remember all of it? Absolutely not. It's a long book. It's a long book. And I have help with um, true uh, Harry Potter swats. Yeah, you're <laughs> not going to get any help from me, I'm afraid. I have absolutely no head. They're all for remembering this sort of thing. All the books blur into one for me. I see. Yeah. But luckily, I have read them all about a bazillion times. Well, Lindy, you're the one who's going to have to help us out with that. I, I, I do have a very good memory for Harry Potter. If I went on Mastermind, which is a British TV show, mm-hmm. I don't know if we have it over here, my specialist subject would be the Harry Potter books. I just It's just full of useless knowledge because I, too, have read them many, many times. But the most times that I have read them in air quotes is listen to the audiobooks by right. Stephen Fry which I do wonder if is better for making sure you get everything in than actually reading the book because sometimes when I would read the book I would skip over stuff I think I would does miss he a do page. funny voices he does the best he voices. does the best voices yeah. if you haven't listened to them they're just they're so much better than the American the Jim Dale version they're just sensational I love yeah them. honestly his his this uh, Stephen Fry's voices are the canonical voices mm. for for me i think of his characterization in my head when i read the books oh yes. wow yeah and more than the movies as well yeah, i think he a million times more he than has movies. i mean i'm always thinking about justice for Ginny, and he does Ginny. he does Ginny so much better than she was done in the films as just one example but yes yes i i do feel she has more presence in the movie uh, in the book uh, all the books a oh, big time than the movies yeah, yeah. Justice for Jenny. Though. Justice for Jenny. We need Jenny done better. Justice for Peeves. Justice for Justice Peeves. for the House Elves. Yeah, there's a lot. So this being kind of the first one I've I've done of Harry Potter without David, I think maybe before we get into this book specifically, I'd like to hear a little bit about your memories of Harry Potter. Presumably both of you were in the UK <laughs> when it was contemporary as a cultural phenomenon like when the books were coming out i know you're probably a little bit young when the first ones came out yeah but i guess the question is what's your relationship been like with harry potter over the years how was it at the start compared to now but and i will add i can attest to lydia's ability (laughs) with harry potter mastermind as being on a opposing trivia team (laughs) every now and again with a harry potter question uh, well, we are slightly younger than the target audience as each book was released, right? But not by much. So I think I wasn't aware of the first book being released, but I was aware of the second book re- being released because my year one teacher, how old are we in year, year one? Six, seven, she read it to us. Mm. So we are right there. Well, I think the Philosopher's Stone was first published in 1997. Right. So we would have been five. Yeah. So yeah, I also don't remember. My first memory is my dad buying me Chamber of Secrets or my mum, one of my parents. Mm. But then just every year after that, I, mean, I, I suspect it was a uh, an experience shared around the world, but it was just a total phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, every single year it was so exciting. For you, Lydia, more than me, you you queued up, right? Every yeah. at midnight, right? To buy the from, book every year? I think from the fifth book onwards, I went with my dad... Sometimes my brother, always my dad. My dad is a very big Harry Potter fan. I don't think my mum has ever read them. My mum, she likes to read, but she was never very interested in Harry Potter. But my dad, Mm. he always, we always used to have to buy two copies. So my brother could have one, I could have one. And then he would read them when we were done. And yeah, we used to go at midnight to the local bookshop 
to they did midnight yeah yeah they probably did that here too i think we had so i grew up in the countryside as i've mentioned i think already somehow um (laughs) and we used to have to drive to the nearest big town the last harry potter film came out when i was in my last year of school i remember going to a midnight showing of the 2011 yeah part two Mm -hmm. of of deathly hallows so it really it really sort of bookended my childhood because then after that i guess i was an adult i went off to university but i've always i mean you dan you and i both and Luke. We both love to read. I always read a lot as a child. I used to read a reasonable amount of fantasy- fantasy-ish. Like, I was always interested in, like, yeah. monsters, like, vampires particularly. I always had a bit of a fascination with as a child. Anything a bit magical, I really liked. And I just I just remember, I've loved Harry Potter as long as I can remember. I think I just read the second one and I was like, I love it. With all the stuff that's been going on with J.K. Rowling, I know a lot of people have found that very difficult i don't necessarily i don't have a particularly um i don't think i have anything profound like harry potter isn't profound to me it wasn't profound on my life but i just i just think they're brilliant i've mm-hmm. always loved them they are my comfort when i can't sleep i put on the audiobook when i'm feeling bad i know they're going to cheer me up i just think i just think they're amazing i think they are just such brilliant i mean children's books but also adult books and something that i think that maybe we can talk about is that my relation my relationship with the books, as I listen to them again, as I get older, I get different stuff mm-hmm. out of it than, Absolutely. I did, I, than I did as a child. That's yeah. great art. Yeah. Is. Well, the only thing of that I would even venture to disagree with at all is that I do actually think it's profound. Sorry. No, <laughs> I, I do I, I think Harry Potter I've, is a profound story. You know, so, well, so I recently listened to a podcast about J.K. Rowling, called mm. the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, and one of the first episodes is people talking about how Harry Potter saved their life, you know, or was oh, their friend when they had yeah. no friends. And it wasn't like that to me. Sure. I just I thought they mean. were, um, yeah. I don't have anything particularly, you know, like that to say, but I just think they're great. Well, to recap something I've probably talked about on the other Harry Potter episodes that we've done, I was never allowed to read these books as a kid because of the latent Satanism in the School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Yeah, that's um, that just came fascinating out. to me. It is fascinating. It's a huge sociological event of the 90s and early 2000s as Harry Potter, the phenomenon kind of came into contact with evangelical culture in North America. It was quite a clash. It's a such a clash. huge clash. Uh, I was still a kid. Like I was like 10 or 11, but I remember it. And I, I remember how the people at the church talked about it. What was what is the basis for for, for this clash? You know, because Harry Potter, the characters, at least the good characters, they are they make you know good moral decisions all <laughs> the time, right? Well, we will be talking about that, okay, for yeah. sure. Yeah, no, I, it's a great question. I, with my retrospective adult mind, analyzing what must have been going on in the minds of the adults around me at the time, in both my personal culture and then more broadly in the United States and Canada probably more the US. It would have to be something like one of the commandments is I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, There's a lot of stories in the Old Testament of usurping gods, taking on Yahweh and Yahweh just destroying them. And I think that because one of the main (laughs) features of Harry Potter is magic, people being able to wield miracles, essentially, that is in competition with Jesus. And Jesus is the Lord your God, you shall know of no other gods before me. If you squint just right, that makes sense if you're a Christian. It absolutely does make sense. But what does not make sense is 
the fact that magic is is a feature of the books you know obviously it's a, a major theme but it's not central to the mm-hmm. story <laughs> you know sometimes it's used as a plot device but the story is about the relationship with these you know young people and with growing up i agree with you i 110 percent agree with you i probably would have at the time and i certainly do now I would say as gently as I can that I think most people don't do a deep dive into the nature of something. They rely on authority figures and media authority figures to tell them what's up about something. And I I don't know this for a fact. You'd have to like go search the archives of, of news stories, but I would bet a lot of money that there was a lot of high-ranking pastors and uh, religious figures in the United States that were castigating Harry Potter, and that's, like, good enough. And probably those people didn't even read the books. I honestly don't think anyone who read these books could have that opinion about it, which speaks to me, (laughs) something I've talked about a lot on this podcast and my other podcast about the kind of intellectually and ethically crippling nature of dogma, how there's so much to learn from these books that were just not available to people like me as a kid. So I don't know if you guys have any other questions about that, but it it has given me a different insight into Harry Potter, I think. Yeah, well, than people who read them as kids. I would be interested. This isn't really a question about your childhood, but more what it was like for you reading Harry Potter for the first time, mm. because obviously you read it when you're much older than we read it. Yeah, and Lid, you already said that you you gained much more on rereading it as an adult than you did initially and when you first read it as a child. Or more things. Yes, additional more things. things. Additional yeah. things, additional things. And 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 different different things. Something um which may come is Snape is very different to me as an adult. Oh totally. I'm like how on yeah, earth is he allowed to be a teacher like this? But I think that's just cuz I'm just more rational whereas as a child I just love to hate I love to hate him. Whereas now I'm like, how is Dumbledore letting this happen? This is quite ridiculous. Well, I think Dumbledore's letting it happen much the same way Dumbledore Dumbledore lets anything happen in these books because it's very important to the plot. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I, uh, first, parenth- first parenthetical of many, Dumbledore, like Yoda and Obi-Wan, uh, suffer from not being forthcoming enough oh, <laughs> to yeah. our heroes about their backstory, thus could potentially having saved them much heartache. Probably most in this book, actually. Yeah, absolutely most in this book. Okay, so I, the first time I ever read a Harry Potter book, I must have been 19. It was the Half-Blood Prince. And I think it had just come out that year. You went straight to Half-Blood Prince. Well, the, 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 the young woman I was dating at the time had just bought it. And we were on vacation with my family on the Oregon coast. And she had just read it. And it was the only one we had there. And she's like, this book is amazing. You should read it. And I was out of books. So I was like, okay. So I read The Half-Blood Prince before I read any of the other Harry Potter books. Can I, can I jump in there? But, so you were with this, the same family who denied yeah. you. But I was 19. Right. They, you know, not totally related. By the time I was about 16, I did whatever I wanted. Okay. Right. That was about the age, I think, where... That's that's really when the underage magic started. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was the first one. And then I watched all the films before I read any of the other books, probably several times. So to me, actually, the canonical Harry Potter Potter was the films because they're the ones I knew the best until this podcast. So yeah, the all seven book. I've read all seven books now and, and a couple of them more than once. (laughs) Certainly this one (laughs) three times now, but all within the last three years. Wow. was the first time I ever read them. And it's weird because I felt very familiar with the story because of the movies. Mm-hmm. 
and very familiar with the cultural phenomenon because of the uh, generation that I'm a part of, mm-hmm. you know, like the actors who play the three mains are, are all born in 89 or 90 and I was born in 87. So it was like very much my age when they were coming down through culture to maybe more directly answer your question. I feel like I do feel like I missed out as a kid on the charm of the potions and the spells and the kind of like fun way of thinking about like, yeah, what house am I in in Hogwarts or all of the kind of more kiddie stuff that is undeniably just beautiful in in Harry Potter. I, I do feel chagrin about that, but having read them for the first time as an adult, I feel, and maybe maybe this is more idiosyncratic to myself because of how much I think about fiction and storytelling. The Harry Potter story is an archetypal story. I, I don't make this, I make this comparison as a form of like adoration, but it's to me, it's almost the same story as Star Wars. It from a From a very like abstract motif point of view, you got your three main characters, you've got Chewbacca and Hagrid, you know, you've got R2-D2 and Dobby. You've got Dumbledore and Obi-Wan Kenobi slash Yoda. Like, it's just... And, and again, like, it's not like Star Wars did this first. These are stories that are thousands of, year, thousands of years old of the hero's journey and the return. And so I think that I got some sort of, like, really deep jewel out of Harry Potter by not reading them until as an adult and, like, being totally able to understand and appreciate a deeper level of storytelling that was going on like i entitled our chamber of secrets episode as almost perfect like to me that book is almost perfect from an archetypal point of view yeah there's some storytelling things just like okay i don't know if i like that character or not but like harry potter does storytelling and characterization and moral lessons second to none and i would not have been able to pick up on that as a kid the second one is a real step up from the first one for sure. Whenever I revisit the first one, it's it's such a it's such a kids book, mm-hmm. which was fun when you're a kid because like all the things that you say, what house are you going to be in? God, I would love to go to Hogwarts. You know, I loved school anyway. Like going to Hogwarts is just there would be nothing. Better. I agree. Um, and actually, this is something David and I have talked about at any given time. Two different things going on in Harry Potter. There's the whatever's happening in that book, and then there's the seven book saga between Harry and Voldemort. And I do think that the first book isn't very good of its own, but I think it is a really great setup for the Harry Voldemort dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it definitely introduces the main villain of the saga in a way that I think is quite compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Even absolutely. if the first book itself is, like, a little bit untidy and childish. Yeah. So Another thing that I also love in rereading them as an adult, something that Dan and I talk about a lot is plot holes. <laughs> we love, and it doesn't matter, like I don't think that diminishes from the book, but I love thinking about this makes no sense. Why Why is this going on? That's a fun well, thing of rereading them I as I an can adult. promise you that, as anyone knows, like a, one of our very first episodes was the original trilogy of Star Wars. I talked about that for three hours. And I could probably talk about three hours about the plot holes in Star mm-hmm. Wars like that. That storyline is absurd, but right? I, I, I just, I, but, but I, I love also, it, yeah, because it's archetypal. So it, like, it's just so satisfying. Yeah, and you're an talking, level. you're having that conversation as well with people who know it well. Mm-hmm. So it, it's fun talking to people who like it as much as you. Well, do. it's it's yeah, we similar, love it despite them. Yeah, it's like kind of how you talk about the um, sort of, I don't know, picadillos of a friend. You know, like mm-hmm. the, the small little funny things about them that maybe they're self-aware about, maybe not. Like the little things that they do, their little quirks uh, in a way that is endearing. Yeah. You know, to me, that's what banter is. Like banter is 
teasing your friends with an underlying understanding that you like them Mm -hmm. or care about them. You don't really banter with people you don't like because it takes on a different edge. I don't know. I maybe I should not talk about banter to a couple Brits because <laughs> you guys invented the concept. Yeah, but go that's on, Lid, get in. <laughs> <laughs> to me, banter. I wouldn't banter with like someone I didn't like. I would probably ignore them. Would yes, my... I would say British people probably would. They, but it would have a different edge. Yeah, would you, yeah, Harry and Malfoy? There's a bit of banter there sometimes. I see. I would not call what they have banter. Mm-hmm. I would call what they have insults or um, superiorism towards each other yeah right like to me if i banter someone i'm not like trying to also project why i think i'm better than them yes there is actually this brings to mind something from the book which i think is harry being so lame remember remember we we spoke about this there was a bit in the i think are they on the they're on the hogwarts express and malfoy is saying to harry that um he has become a prefect and Harry has not. And he was like, me, unlike you, are this. And me, unlike you, and that are that. And then Harry's response is like, but I, unlike you, am not a git. So piss <laughs> off or whatever. And it's just so lame. It really is. <laughs> Harry is incredibly unfunny. Mm-hmm. And then at the other end of the spectrum, this book also has what I think is my funniest line in the whole series. Oh, cool. It has my laugh out loud. It gets me every time. <laughs> it's Ron. Ron is very funny in these books, I think. We can it's it's right at the end of the book, so mm. we can um talk about it later. But cool. yeah, Harry's so uncool. He's got no banter in him. No, he doesn't. No, it's not his strength. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> Thank you, Lydia and Dan, for joining me onto this uh, continuing odyssey into this book series that I adore and am also uh, humored by in that way where it is a little bit nonsensical at times. So just before we get into Order of the Phoenix, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Amazon. And if you uh, are from India or surrounding areas, uh, we're up there on Ghana, G-H-A-A-N-A. So pretty proud of that. Always have been, probably always will be. And Good big black star for you. Yeah, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate a rating or a review. Tell your friends about it. That's a good way to get it out there. Um, if you get any value from this, uh, that'd mean a lot to me. And actually, I just started a Really True Fiction Twitter account. I'm finally allowed to again, because the first time I tried to, when they asked for your birthday, I gave Really True Fiction's birthday, which would have made me a two-year-old at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and Twitter said, sorry, you can't do that. They like blocked the IP. But everything goes address. and now it's X these days. Yeah, so I did it now and I actually did my birthday. So I, uh, I think it's at rt fiction 87 so i'll try and post episodes there as well so harry potter and the order of the phoenix book number five just a very basic plot rundown for anyone who doesn't know uh what happens in this book yeah so this book i think really is the turning point i think Mm -hmm. one two three and four up until right at the end are more you know, they're really about the school year mm-hmm. and they're really about what Harry's doing at school. So at the end of the fourth book is when Harry goes through the portkey at the end of the Triwizard Tournament and sees Voldemort come back to a body. The Death Eaters are there. Cedric Diggory is murdered in front of him. And then he manages to escape there because of the beginning that we're seeing of the connection between Harry and Voldemort. Mm-hmm. And he manages to get back to Hogwarts to safety and warn Dumbledore, the Ministry of Magic, that Voldemort is back. So that's how 
We, Anyone who will listen. <laughs> that is how we end the fourth book. And yeah, I just think that marks a mm-hmm. real change. That title shift as well. This I, is, I do think that end of Goblet of Fire is arguably the best climax of any of the books. Oh, it's Even brilliant. the seventh one, I think. I, I felt more anxiety. Yes. At, it's really scary. Goblet and of Fire. It's one of the best. I, I mean, I like the films in that I'm nostalgic about them. I don't think they're brilliant on the whole. I think the end of the fourth book is so good. I think Ray Fiennes is such a good Voldemort. And that, I remember going to watch that in the cinema. Mm-hmm. I think I was 13 and being terrified. Yeah. So scary when he's coming out of the, the cauldron. Um, so yeah, I agree. Yeah. Great ending. It's hard now looking back because you know how the books end. But I, I don't really remember how I felt at the end of the fourth one. I think I really must have been like, oh God, I have no idea what's going to happen. So at the beginning of the fifth one... Harry is back at the Dursleys and it sort of goes on from there. He's sort of being kept out of the loop, isn't he? He doesn't know what's going on in the magical world. He's very frustrated. I think he has what we would, as adults, would now understand as trauma Mm -hmm. from seeing someone um, murdered in front of his eyes. But he, as a teenager, is just very grumpy. He's very upset. The very beginning is when he and his cousin Dudley Dursley encounter some Dementors and he is forced to do some underage magic which, of course, is very bad. Owls come. He's been told he's been kicked out of Hogwarts. The Dursleys want him out. It's all just the beginning of a lot of messes for Harry, it feels like. Mm -hmm. How much of the plot? That's such a long book. You're right, you're right. They go back to school. Yeah. Uh, There's this new character, Umbridge, who um, I think is a great character. It's a great name. The reason I think she's a great character is because I fucking hate her (laughs) so much. So much. Any emotional outburst to a character in a in a fiction is a good character i think she's a new defense against the dark arts teacher dumbledore is like kind of ignoring harry most of the year and they're trying to figure out how to possibly go about standing up against voldemort with no support from any of the institutions yeah so she's been she's been appointed by the ministry Mm -hmm. it's the ministry meddling at hogwarts and not wanting to teach them defense against the dark arts which they need because voldemort is back and she won't do it so they take matters into their own hands and sort of have an underground resistance. As she begins to micro and micro and further micromanage Hogwarts. Yes, she becomes, she makes Hogwarts somewhere where Harry doesn't want to be, which is a big deal because he loves it there. It's his safe place. Well, and it's, so, yeah, it's been the thing that has metaphorically saved his life Yeah. from his previous existence, right? Yeah. Interestingly, I feel like this book is a little bit less exciting than all previous four in terms of like... Uh, what's happening all the time it's much more building for the rest of the story uh, i think as you alluded to before and uh, it kind of comes to a head with umbridge essentially wanting to use an unforgivable curse against harry to get some information out of him about about dumbledore uh, but, uh, but whereabouts. double's whereabouts right and sirius as well yeah. she, she knows that he right. knows where sirius is and as the book title includes there's um the order of the phoenix is uh these i guess are they all aurors or no they're not all aurors. or or no, talented we, mr and mrs weasley are in the order says bill right it's just people who are who want to stand up to voldemort yeah really. and like capable of doing it yeah enough adult yeah to help out who believe harry who believe dumbledore and then they start dumbledore's army as like a kind of mini order of the phoenix within hogwarts which i actually think is i loved that yeah. section of harry actually kind of embracing his talent because uh, yeah, so that's that's something about youth that is not always easy to do 
is to like notice what you're good at and how to like help other people with it without seeming like you think you're bragging or better than them like and the climax of this being in the ministry of magic Voldemort has essentially tricked Harry through uh these kind of visions he's been having that they share some sort of mind which gets revealed more in the seventh book about how that works into the mystery of magic there's a showdown between these death eaters and <laughs> some Seven. remnant of Templedore's army uh, mostly Harry and Neville by the end of it and then uh the order of the phoenix shows up but then spoiler alert for order of the phoenix Sirius is killed by Bellatrix who is also another great villain. So great. That's another thing. Like the villains in this are incredible. Yeah, I actually didn't like Bellatrix so much as a villain. She's too pantomime, too absurd, too like, you know, too much of a caricature of an evil person. I would agree with you if she was the only villain. Yeah. But with other villains, I can I have more leeway and slack That's for fair. someone That's who's a, a little point. bit more over the top. For She's just total flavor. That yeah. part of my personality. Yeah. I uh, would love a Bellatrix origin story. <laughs> yeah. Like this is kind of interesting that JK Rowling hasn't done these. Like I would love to know more about her, like how she gets into the the thing. Because I know there's in the the cursed child that comes afterwards. I don't know if you've read that, Luke, which no, is it's a play. What? Okay, I'm not I'm not gonna spoil it for you then. Um, but it's a play that's on the West End in London. I think it's in New York as well. Mm. Um, but essentially they give Bellatrix a bit of an origin story that makes no sense with the rest of the books. We didn't like it very much, did we? So I would like to have something that makes more sense. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to happen. Although I've realized it's something I should have told you, Luke, ah. because there are a bunch of characters we meet in this book, including Luna Lovegood. Mm -hmm. And I went to an open audition to be Luna Lovegood in the films oh, yeah? when I was like 11 years old. Did you get a callback? I, I went through two rounds, mm. but I think there were many more rounds. There were still lots of girls there. Yeah, she ended up being pretty good, I thought, that Lena in yeah, the movie. Yeah, she did. I would, have been, I would have been good. Oh, you would have been great. Yeah. But the actress who got it was also quite... Ivana Lynch. You're too spunky, mate. I didn't have long enough hair. I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't old enough. So many reasons. <laughs> but anyway, Luna Lovegood <laughs> comes, comes into it. Totally. Yeah, yeah, some really good characters that you associate as deeply with the Harry Potter story as any of them come in in this book, right? Totally. Luna, Bellatrix, and Umbridge, at least, maybe more. Those are the three that I can think of off the top of my head. Hold on, we, ha we haven't finished talking about the plot. We haven't. A final battle between Voldemort and Dumbledore in exactly. the Ministry. Why they go to the Ministry. We haven't explained why uh, uh, Voldemort is sending Harry There's a prophecy. Decisions. There's a prophecy. Yeah. Yeah, there is a prophecy which Voldemort has, of which Voldemort has some of the details, but he's desperate to get his hands on the entire prophecy so that he can really learn the details. And because the reason for that is that this prophecy describes how Harry, well, how Voldemort and one of two potential mm -hmm. figures are going to have to end up killing one of them. Yeah, only one can live. Yeah, and, and by the hand of the other. And Voldemort needs Harry to get the prophecy because only Voldemort or the other person, who he thinks is Harry, which it turns out to be, but it could not have been, needs to actually grab it physically and Voldemort can't go to the Ministry of Magic because he'll get seen right away, although he chooses to anyway. Yes, and <laughs> which Broderick is... Bode tries to take it down. I think that's just such a great name for a character. <laughs> that's one of my main things about, she, about these books. J.K. Rowling does great name. Oh, yeah. 
yeah. fantastic names. Some of them are just great character names. Some of them are nods and winks to like classical stories. Absolutely. You know? Sybil Trelawney. The Sybil was yeah. a, a Greek prophetess. And her ancestor is named Cassandra, which is from the Greek of the, would always be right and never believed. Absolutely. Princess of Troy, I think, right? Yeah, she was Priam's daughter. That's right. My personal favorite is Remus Lupin, both a, a nod to myth and science in one name. Two of my favorite things. Very <laughs> so. good. And then you just have Albus, Percival, <laughs> Wilfric, Brian, Dumbledore. That's nothing but just is really great. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. True. So what are some of the things that stick out to you the most? Well, of Order of the Phoenix. The, the major, one of the major things which differentiates this book from the others and certainly the ones that come before is the fact that Harry is now a moody, bloody teenager. He was a little bit moody in Goblet of Fire, too. He was more angry, I think, at Ron specifically in Goblet of Fire than this one. He's more, like, moody at everybody. I don't think this is the first book he's moody in. Okay, I guess that is fair enough. This is the first book where Harry's moodiness is consistent throughout. Sure. And uh, is, uh, I'd say so, that. And I think he often, when people talk about this book, they often bring that up, but I... I think he is so well within his rights to be moody. The the (laughs) things that go wrong for this boy in this book, the book starts off with two Dementors being sent to kill him, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Actually, before that, the book book starts off with Harry alone being in this horribly abusive environment with no one contacting him, no one telling him anything, no one putting an arm around his shoulder. After this trauma. After he's just seen Voldemort return and murder Cedric Diggory. And almost murder him. And he smashes his head. And I know you hate hitting your head done. I bloody hate hitting my head. He does smash his head. And <laughs> then he has all this stuff going on with Cho and he doesn't understand, even though he's obviously, that is all his, well, partially his fault because mm-hmm. uh, he's not the most emotionally complex character. Oh, sorry, not the most emotionally developed character. Sure. And then all the dreadful things that happen in the end, serious And Dumb- Dumbledore not speaking. I think Dumbledore not speaking to him is really bad. Thank you. Dumbledore yeah. not speaking to him. And at the end, when I I didn't reread the book, but I did re-listen to it mm-hmm. uh, in anticipation for this, and I ended up crying listening to <laughs> as I listened to Dumbledore talking to Harry in his office at the end of the book, where Dumbledore apologizes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and you have this amazingly. Oh, it's not quite cathartic. That's not quite the right word. But you had this authority figure apologizing to the teenage Harry for mm. letting him down. And I found that really, really moving. You know, there's so much in this book that goes wrong for Harry. Yeah, I agree. That's one of the first things I always think about when I think about this book is Harry being moody and how when I was younger, I used to find it really annoying. Mm. Obviously, being a woman. I was a girl. I think I didn't cut Harry much slack. And I think actually rereading this as an adult, I'm like, I didn't find him as moody as I thought. I I thought when I was re-listening to this, I would just be reminding myself of things I I already thought. And I think Mm. I agree with you, Dan. I think that he is well within his rights to be so annoyed. I think that adults should do much better by him. I think he should be nicer to Hermione particularly. Mm -hmm. Ron, whatever, they're fine. They're mates, (laughs) they just get on. But like, he deserves better by Hermione but yeah I definitely do feel like the adults owe him a lot more I remember we were listening to the bit where Mrs Weasley where he first arrives in Grimmauld Place and Mrs Weasley won't tell him anything and it's just like 
so so annoying i would be furious if i was him so that was my yeah that was my that's the one of the first things i always think about this book mm-hmm. but on re-listening i think he yeah it's okay for him to be so moody yeah so that is very true he goes through the absolute ringer yeah, <laughs> emotionally does, in this and we were all 15 at one point like it's not when you're at your most capable in your emotional toolkit to handle hard things in the world but what you're talking about, it's making me think about what I what I think is one of the great sort of meta themes about Harry Potter, and it's like most overtly shown in like Fudge and Umbridge, uh, and it's more kind of like obliquely shown in some of the more kind of like day to day witches and wizards, and I think at some level Seamus is going through this too with his relationship to Harry, which is that. I'll I'll lead it up with this. I don't know if you've ever heard the joke about the drunk looking for his keys. No, nope. you ever heard that? So this joke I think really illuminates this point. Is that there's this guy he's walking down the street at night and he sees this drunk guy looking under a street light and he goes up to the guy and he's like, "Oh, are you okay?" He's like, "I'm pretty drunk, but I my house keys. I can't find my house keys. I dropped them." He's like looking under the street light and he's like, well, so did you drop them here under the light? And he says, no, I dropped them over there in the dark. (laughs) And he's like, well, why are you looking here? And the guy says, well, this is where the light is. (laughs) (laughs) And that joke to me captures what a lot of the characters in Harry Potter, how they relate to Voldemort is that for Fudge and Umbridge by extension, to truly face the idea that they're not in control of Azkaban or the Dementors and that Voldemort might be back is like looking for your keys in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> it's much easier to go after a 15-year-old kid and a schoolmaster than the Dark Lord. Oh, totally. And so that is most overtly shown in those two characters. But again, like in the in the same way that a lot of characters wince at the sound of Voldemort's name, the idea that the Dark Lord is back is a bridge too far Mm. emotionally for so many characters in this book. And there are essentially three characters, two and a half, three by this book that never wince. And that's Harry, Dumbledore, and Hermione. Well, Hermione did wince. She She does. She she overcomes her wince. But she overcomes it, which to me is, this is tangential. I think she's the real hero of the Harry Potter saga. She cannot be said enough. She is amazing. But by the end of this book, there's like, three characters who will go look in the dark for their keys in this in this metaphor i just really liked this sort of double consciousness of the characters in this book like really having to consciously and like if you think about it more broadly in your life like having to focus on the real problems you have not the ones you think you can deal with yeah like that to me is one of the great meta themes of harry potter although with umbridge she, I don't think she really cares about Voldemort. She's not afraid. Like Fudge is afraid. Mm-hmm. And Fudge is an idiot, but he's on the right side. He's not, Yeah. he's not, he doesn't support Voldemort anyway. Whereas Umbridge. But he's doing everything he can to not have to oh, face it. 100%. He's, do, he's got his head in the sand. Mm-hmm. Whereas Umbridge doesn't, I think she doesn't like things being different, like diverting from the normal way or what the way that is said. Because obviously... Spoiler, in the seventh book, she's working for the Ministry of Magic Mm -hmm. for a Voldemort-appointed... Vichy government. 
Yeah, exactly. Pro- yeah, she's, um, Minister she's, for Magic. So she, she's more of a bureaucrat. She is. She's <laughs> just she's just a busybody, and mm-hmm. she doesn't like anyone threatening the the norm, which is why she's so evil and such a brilliant character. I always said if I was to be in the Harry Potter films, I would want to play Umbridge mm. because it just looks like so much fun. It would be fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Melda Stone does a good job actually. Oh, she's, she's great, fantastic. Eh? Yeah. That thought about Harry being so screwed over yes he's clearly screwed over by some of the fudge and umbridge want to railroad him mm-hmm. in that trial and they only can't because of how convincing the evidence is in harry's favor and the fact that they still have uh, a vote not judge jury executioner kind of thing mm-hmm. yes absolutely is this the first book in which jk rowling so overtly sort of tackles bureaucracy well, it's the first book where the min- you guys know this better than me, so I, I say this a little bit carefully. But I'm pretty sure this is the first one where the ministry is at least a main focus of much of the many parts of the book. Yes, I would. I mean, it, they feature in the third book with Buckbeak, with the execution of Buckbeak, That's true. that getting involved. But I think, and in the fourth book, Fudge appears a few times mm-hmm. um, because he's there for, and you know, Barty Crouch is there for the Goblet of Fire. So it's always it's always around, but I would say that this is Harry against, or Harry and Dumbledore against, not only having to overcome evil, but having to overcome people. Yeah, in uh, way, uh, an unwieldy institution. <laughs> exactly, and, and a, an institution which is divorced from, well, morality, I suppose you could say, <laughs> yeah. So clearly out for itself and for its own machinations rather than for the benefit but, like, of the But imagine if you, were, if you were there... Maybe you wouldn't believe them, though. It's so easy for us to, if you think about this being in a a real world sense, if the government is saying one thing and then there's someone who's out there who's saying another thing, you... I would hope that any bureaucracy that I would ever be a part of would be more willing to believe the evidence, for example, in a trial, in Harry's trial, uh, when he's accused of being uh, conducting underage... I think the crucial point there is that, was it Wisgamot? Is that how you pronounce it? The Wisengamot. Wisengamot acknowledges that um, Dementors attacked Harry, which, as Dumbledore (laughs) quite politely, but I think accurately points out, I thought the ministry might be interested in knowing how that could have happened. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) totally. so, So the fact that Dementors attacked Harry should, even if you don't believe anything Harry has said as a auxiliary piece of data, is like, well, how did this happen? Oh, no, well, F- Fudge doesn't believe that they're there. He be- he thinks Harry made it up. Sure, but maybe this is too in the weeds. I don't think Fudge is a dictator. Like, the rest of the people in, oh, in, the, in the courtroom have yeah, to be yeah. like, wait a minute. He got voted. Plot hole. Right? He got yeah. voted exonerated, which means at least half of the people there are like, well, they're dementors in Little Whinging. So that means what happened at Azkaban exactly? exactly. Like you'd think there'd be an inquiry about how that came about. And one of the leading theses might be like, well, maybe somebody else is telling them what to do, which turns out is Umbridge. Yeah. So it it turns out that no one else is telling them what to do. The ministry is telling them what to do. (laughs) And it's a ministry figure, Dolores Umbridge, who sends two fences off to kill Harry (laughs) Potter. Which is hilariously the point that Umbridge gets a little bit persnickety at Dumbledore for suggesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, although I think Dumbledore is just saying that you need to remove the the Dementals before Voldemort convinces them, rather than necessarily they were already. 
He does bring up the point, though, that it is a little strange that a ministry-controlled institution is having its guards yes. attack underage wizards in their muggle town. So maybe that was maybe that was something that made the Order of the Phoenix be like, we need to get going even more so than mm-hmm. we were before. Oh, because for sure. they thought that Voldemort was already in control of them when actually he wasn't yet. Well, yeah, for, I assume for the Order of the Phoenix, they just see that as further evidence that Harry's telling the truth. Yeah. And, and Dumbledore also by proxy or affiliation. So I just found that Rowling is so good at vivid visualizations of things. The attack of the Dementors and the subsequent trial are two of the parts of the book I remember the best. And maybe it helps us at the very beginning, but it's just so, like, I feel Harry's anxiety over the top in both of those scenarios. Yeah. In his ability to both deal with the Dementors and then, I don't know, like, just the anxiety. I've talked about this before on this podcast. I have so much... I, I have had so much anxiety around bureaucracies intruding into my life when I didn't know it was going to happen. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know? That moment where he's being led down the corridor and he's confronted with this. Even the letter he gets. Exactly. And he has <laughs> no idea what it is. It's kind of Kafkaesque, And he's right? late. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. He's late because the time changes. Yeah. And he doesn't oh, understand yeah. what he's this doing. This is a Kafka there. wet dream. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this whole segment. Exactly. So, yeah, I was, I was quite impressed. It made an impression on me. And I was... I thought it was a really well-threaded needle of like dealing with his anxiety, but also plot. Yeah, totally. For that, you know, and, and just the way it, oh man, I, he could talk about narrative crafting, like introducing Umbridge in this way as a character that's going to be some of the best works of fiction, introduce a character in one setting for us to have them smoothly come in a different setting and, yeah. and kind of function as a different role yeah in the book and and umbridge is second to none i think in the harry potter universe for that like she's not totally different as the teacher as she is in the in the court but she doesn't quite have the same presence to me that's still that's fudge's scene yeah that's fudge versus dumbledore not umbridge versus dumbledore but we get a taste you know she's she's in our she's in our subconscious at the very least Mm -hmm. now as a character. I totally agree. And that's something she does well again with Slughorn, right? In in, in the next book. Mm-hmm. Gently introducing him in one context before we meet him properly again yeah. in the second. Well, that's there are so many Easter eggs in the fifth book. I think it's really... I've already mentioned this is really setting up for the next couple. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that J.K. Rowling really likes. She likes to Im- implant an idea and then revisit it later like how Umbridge again comes back in the seventh book after she's so at the end of the fifth book you think she's done you think she's over and then in the seventh book she's back in a position of power with some things that are very important to the plot I love Umbridge really I love I love that she's very feminine and very evil. Mm. You know, the, mm. the pink cardigans and the sweet, the, the fake sweetness. Yeah, the mewling cats. And yeah, the, uh, the mewling porcelain. cats and that she looks like a toad and with the, the velvet bow, like I could, she's just, in terms of painting a picture, even before the films, I could just see her. Like I, I've seen that woman. I know that woman in the matching cardigan set as a British, like in my head. Yeah, she just yeah. makes a lot of sense. And I actually, I think... On the whole, J.K. Rowling does women well. 
as being a woman herself, I'm glad that there are women... And a self-styled champion of women. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there are, um, there, are many, there are many women in... There are many different women in the book. And I really love that there are really evil women. And mm-hmm. women who are very different and also evil. Like Bellatrix is very different from Umbridge. And probably talk about that more in the seventh book with Molly versus bellatrix yeah it's because i think molly kills bellatrix is she not the one who does yeah she does although that is one of the bits of the book i really hate yeah me too (laughs) maybe we'll maybe we'll have to be on that podcast because i have thoughts hey yeah well we got two more books to go after this one just to make sure we say everything we want to about harry in this book yeah i i agree there were two things though that he did in this book that i think it's not that they're unforgivable because he's 15 and he's under a lot of pressure but there are two things that I found him to be quite obtuse about that I think are a good storytelling feature. The two things are he doesn't listen to Hermione nearly enough about the idea that Voldemort might be tricking him. It's just too obvious. There's too much that has happened to Harry for him to not, and, and Hermione has been there enough for him, for him to not even pause yeah, yeah, I would totally about it. agree. You know, he he's... Why by this point in the series, Harry doesn't take now, half an hour to listen to everything that Hermione tells him. Now, 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 again, this is the like Greek form of tragedy, the fatal flaw in the hero, where his Achilles heel is his love for well, sa- his friends. And, and his, sa- his saviour complex. I think it's more than love. I think it's like... Sure. Yeah, he's he's gotten used to doing the saving, and he finds the draw of that... It's almost I don't to... think it's just love because Hermione loves. Hermione has the propensity to love. He's, I think, he is clouded by his need to to, save. Act, to act the savior. Well, yeah. I actually, completely disagree. I he also really does harsh. save people, though. Yeah, he yeah, has. Yeah. He has. So it's not like it's you a total save... fantasy. No, no. It's but I, I think it is. I think it is fed by the fact that yeah. he has saved people, and because right. he saved Ginny in the second book, and he saved. Serious in the third book, I think he's so used to doing that. He's just like, it's, this has got to be it. This is my role. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally disagree. I think it's <laughs> it's it's m- more the fact that he spent this whole book pulling his hair out because no one's doing anything. And now that we have an opportunity for action and something clearly has to be done because someone is going to die and no one will even bloody listen to him. And But they did, but they it. did. They did. Hermione did listen to him. She just she said. She did, yeah. And also, Snape. The thing is with Snape. Snape also listened to him, but he didn't. He didn't say anything. I just I, the the bit right at the end of the book where Harry finds the mirror and he's for, and that he'd forgotten about. That bit really makes me want to just punch myself in the face with the book. Like yeah. it's so sad. That is so sad. And his how he's so clouded to have forgotten that to remember the knife, but to forget the mirror, the two way mirror that he has that he could have used to speak to Sirius. Yeah, just... I actually find that implausible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that Harry. You know, who's only had Sirius really as Sirius? as a sympathetic, <laughs> only had Sirius <laughs> as a uh, sympathetic voice. Uh, you know, that he didn't use sympathetic ear. Yeah, but you're telling me he didn't use his godfather's birthday gift to him. Yeah, he forgot. No, nonsense. <laughs> he just forgot about it. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, yeah, you pick apart <laughs> at that level. It's yeah, anyway. crazy. <clears throat> yeah, but I, I totally agree. He should listen to Hermione. He should be nicer to Hermione. Hermione is... The older I get, the more I'm like, she's not that annoying. Like, she's painted as this very irritating... She's, like, annoying in the first book. Yeah. Which is one book. But she's... For the rest of them, she's just common sense. Yeah. Yeah. To Harry's credit, in his best... Not even best moments. I think in his normal moments, he's nice to Hermione. Yes. And he understands her worth. He's much nicer than Ron. Yeah, that's true. 
I guess maybe you could chalk it up to like a 15 year old's just anger. It's not being able to see good sense in all of this, but like consider, well, and I think it actually is also part of what the second thing I find a little bit, not unforgivable again about Harry, but a blind spot at the very least is even when he's talking later to Dumbledore at the end, he's still angry at Snape. Yeah. Snape saved his fucking life that night. Like Snape is the one who told them, yeah. told the Order of the Phoenix to go to the ministry because only in the last moment, which is Harry through some pretty good cleverness, gives the encoded message to Snape without Umbridge getting it. But without Snape, it would have been Harry and Neville facing Voldemort Yeah, eventually in that book. And Snape being the one teaching him is it occlumency? Am I saying that right? Occlumency. Yeah. Occlumency is one of the reasons he doesn't want to learn it. He said, "You say teaching, but it, it's 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 not teaching, is it? It's just repeatedly bullying." Okay, okay, you're right. Yeah, I'll rephrase because I don't think that's the heart of what I what my point would be. The fact that Voldemort could do this—that <laughs> now that legilimency, legilimency. Mm-hmm. Leg- <laughs> <laughs> How do you pronounce it? Let's go with legilimency. Legilimency. Yeah. Legilimency. Okay, legilimency. <laughs> The fact that this is something that exists, that Voldemort might be able to do, and that Harry's smart enough to know that Voldemort might be able to do this, means that him clouded by his anger at Snape is just too short-sighted for the stakes. Yeah. Yes. I will give you that. I, As a reader, I find it frustrating. I think, as a, imagining a 15-year-old boy, I think he needs a focus for his anger. And it's much easier to hate someone who's right in front of you. You have to see every day who makes your life miserable, you know. Someone hates you. Yeah, someone who reminds, also reminds you of what you lost. You know, the the relationship that he had with his father. I think I think the, the visit that Harry has into the pensive is very mm-hmm. interesting. And also something I, as I, this is one of the things I was really... Imp- Sorry, can I note the correct pronunciation of pensive, not pensive, as it is in the bloody movies. Oh. <laughs> is that what they say in the movies? Yeah. Ponceve? <laughs> it, oh, it gets me every single time, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I think it's just an amazing thing, that a pensive, the idea that you could take out a memory and revisit it. Because I, I often think about there are nights in my, when I was younger, that I would love to watch again. And mm. I think that's just such a wonderful thing. And, you know, when Harry goes in and he sees his mother and his father and Sirius um, and Lupin, what that must have been how that must have made him feel you know as an orphan I think that's one of the thinking about this as an adult I think that's something that really I just couldn't stop thinking about the idea of your parent dying and then you were just able to go and see them like if that I'd just be in there all the time I would be going around to everyone I know asking them to give me memories so I could go and visit them and I think that's actually something that doesn't the fact that Harry's an orphan is kind of just you're like he's an orphan it's accepted I think actually what that means for well, there, him as a child is, it, is actually it takes that's... insight because this is more like a structure of fiction like if it's just postulated at the start of a story we accept it yeah and and we think about it less any famous story like uh walter white why is he so good at cooking meth well he's a really brilliant he's chemistry a teacher <laughs> okay yeah. <laughs> you know like the 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 that kind of thing that would take a lot of um explanation otherwise is just written into the story it's like a prior right and i Mm -hmm. think that things that are written into stories as kind of base rate priors often get overlooked in analysis because we 
are thinking about the things that happen, not the things that have happened. So off screen. So anyway, that's not really here or there. It's just no, something. No, I mean it's just yeah. um just that bit in the book just really stuck with me this mm-hmm. time. Harry going into that and then you know having to see Snape and having that sort of conflicted relationship of you make me think badly about my parents who I you know I didn't really know and I just want to love. I think must be yeah it's just easy for him to to hate Snape and then when he goes and has has that conversation with Lupin and Sirius afterwards where they assure him that his parents were good people and that they loved each other I just think that was a really lovely like human mm. part of the book that I didn't it didn't it didn't sit with me when I was younger but revisiting that now that was something I was thinking about a lot yeah because if especially that particular memory is not something that is very flattering to James uh, no, or or serious, for that matter. Neither right? come out well. Though. Yeah, the idea that we're not like the totality of our worst decisions or our worst moment, you know, is is something again kind of uplifting. Yeah, it is uplifting, but I'm not sure that the writing does quite enough to tell us that. Actually, I think when he goes to speak to Lupin and, and Sirius, they both just say, essentially, "Don't worry." Yes, we were dickheads. We weren't always dickheads. Your dad was a nice guy. I don't think they do enough. You know what they're doing to Snape is like is is bloody horrible. Yeah, really horrible. Yeah, really quite bad. You know, I think Harry's well within his rights. To is do. there not any lines from Lupin sort of being apologetic about it? I felt yes, like there it was. is, and he that there is, and then they also say that Snape would have done and did exactly the same thing to them. Yeah, I, I we didn't. I didn't that. think it was enough. Fair. Personally, yeah. I didn't Fair. think it was enough. It might have been a nice touch. I feel like J.K. Rowling also does a lot of great little bits here and there that aren't really useful to the story other than just to be like nice bits. Yeah. And they could have been something at some point where someone else gives him a nicer memory of his mother and his father. <laughs> I think that would have been a nice, you know, in an epilogue, you know, when they're at the station, you know, Lupin could have said, I wanted to give you something to show you your pa- like your parents being great people. That could have been a nice way. To do that. Are there no other memories he has that directly? He does none that he can inhabit and experience in the in the pensive. Hmm. I think pensives. We were talking about this. I think they're very rare. The um, idea because I was like, why doesn't everyone get them all the time? Like, why are you not always? Doesn't Gladriel have one? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's yeah. not quite a pensive, but she um, has something like that. Yeah, no, that's the mirror Gladriel. We can see things that have been, some things that are, and some things that have not yet come to pass. That's right. But, I mean, he sees his parents in the first book, in the Mirror of Erised, but they're not... And they're with him in the graveyard. Yes, and they're with him in the graveyard, graveyard. and then they'll be with him again in the seventh book. But no, you don't really... Lily, especially. I guess you get a bit more of that in the seventh book, but it's all from Snape's perspective. I don't think, actually, we get much of what she is like as a person. No. As a student, as a a mother. I think we get a much more insight into who James is. Yeah, I relate to this a, quite a lot, really, because I, I ended up working in the same field and same institution that my dad worked in, who died when I was a kid. And I've met so many people who've told me, who've given me, well, uh, who've told me little, give me little vignettes or little little stories mm. about, about him. Well, I mean, in a similar vein, every couple of years or so, I'll watch home videos of my mom. Well, my yeah. whole family. Yeah, She's prominent mm-hmm. <laughs> in them. And it is visual and audio. Like, uh, it's amazing. You know, she's, it's almost been nine years and I still, I'm like immediately drawn back when I hear her voice on a recording. Yeah. It's kind of like never gone, even if I don't hear it in forever. Actually, this is a, a, it's not 
even exact ex- close to what happens in the book, but I, I have had this weird. Th- so the, the Nelson public library has just released a whole bunch of old Shaw cable videos from like the late eighties, early nineties. And I just saw a couple new videos with my parents when I was like three or four. So they would have been like about my age now and things I'd never seen before, you know, like I, all of the old home videos are, pretty much memorized for me but this just to see a new thing my mom talked about and my dad telling the story of the adoption of one of my sisters like it's just it was not off-putting but it was like I was fascinated yes it was a brand new audio visual representation of something about my parents from an era that I'd never seen before uh, and I didn't know them very well because so so is this not knowing them very well because because you learn something new about them kind of yeah just no matter how the the interviewer asked my mom how she how it was adopting a kid and she's like it's a lot easier than pregnancy right right. (laughs) a new joke but a sense of humor i'm familiar with you know that kind of thing so i think harry is under a lot of stress but i also feel whether intentionally or not because sometimes archetypes come out on accident if you're a talented writer they just are the side effects of your character's interactions but i feel that there's some sort of as you say dan there's lessons throughout harry potter there is some lesson in harry's short-sightedness in like the climax of this book he's been traumatized he's had terrible mentors for the most part in this book and yet he's gone through enough where this should not have happened to him, I think. And maybe there's some lesson in here about having to still be an adult, even if you're A, not an adult, and going through some terrible things, given what's at stake. But maybe that's the epitaph (laughs) to to this section of the podcast. You know what I mean, though? Like The thing is that what happens to Sirius and we can say this is at some level Dumbledore's fault for not being forthcoming mm-hmm. throughout the book yes fair but Dumbledore does talk about I think it's Dumbledore who tells Harry about like if you can see into Voldemort's mind he can maybe see into yours too and you need to be wary of this so it has come from Dumbledore that he needs to go to Snape of anyone in the books Harry knows what Voldemort is capable of and yet Voldemort still gets the jump on them from all of this. Mm-hmm. I guess that's why it happens in the fifth book, not the seventh book. Like, is this another lesson for Harry? Yeah, I mean, Harry's not that smart. He's like medium smart, I would say. Yeah. So I think, I don't know if it's a lesson because it's just like Voldemort is, Voldemort is very smart. Much smarter than almost anyone in the series. Not Hermione. Hermione, Dumbledore, Voldemort. They're like our three smartest I think I said to you, Dan, did I say to you is like, how does Voldemort lose? Like fundamentally, how does Voldemort lose? And it is like the Emperor in Star Wars. Where arrogance. Arrogance, right? It's always arrogance, isn't it? It's Voldemort the, the, loses. What's it? What's the thing that villains do? Monologue. Exposition, yeah. The monologue. You call yeah. me monologue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, he fundamentally, like Voldemort fundamentally underestimates Hermione and Harry. Oh, yeah. That's why he loses. Yeah. You know, he just doesn't take them seriously enough. And he's obsessed with as school. Like, let Hogwarts go. Like, you've got much bigger fish to fry. You've got the world to take over. 
just forget about. I mean, I know it's stupid. This is a this is a for me a plot hole. If this was for adults, but it's not for adults. It's for kids, and it's mm-hmm. about a school Hogwarts. But I'm just like, come on, what are you doing? Putting your bits of your soul there. What leaving them around the school? Just leaving them in places where it's very easy for people to find them. How does Voldemort lose? Yeah, because it's a kids' book. <laughs> Can you ever remember a time in your life where you fucked up? a bigger problem because you were focused on a smaller problem. I feel like that's the kind of ethical idea going on in that segment with Harry. His hatred of Snape, justified or not, Snape is not as bad as Voldemort. No. And Harry kind of needs to get over that. Yeah. Yeah. In order to deal with Voldemort, and yet he just he just can't. Yeah. You know. Sure. And I th- and I think that there is something in that. I think that's awesome. I think it, it, it impacted me in that way. It's like, oh, dude, <laughs> bigger, as you say, bigger fish to fry than Snape. Yeah, yeah. I take that point. I, t- I take that point. But he is 15. And I think that is on those around him to treat him as a 15 year old, to recognize that he is capable of acting mm-hmm. uh, under his own steam and that they need to give him the information that he needs in order to act in the proper way. And yeah. they absolutely completely fail him. Dumbledore obviously fails him by not being present and not explaining to him what is going on. And Snape completely lets him down by essentially bullying him in every single occlumency lesson. You know, I, I, That's I take point. your point, Luke, but I think it's on the adults because he is 15. Yeah. If you put the shoe on the other foot, Snape did not take Voldemort's presence seriously enough either. No. By, totally. by being as mean to Harry as he was. Totally. In yes. those and lessons. evidence up until this point shows you that Harry is going to do something. So if you don't give... You think, or Mrs. Weasley thinks that by not telling him anything, she can stop him doing something when it's actually the opposite. You need, he needs enough information to understand what's going on. But that's, that's what the whole fifth, the fifth, the whole of the fifth book, it feels like you're progressing through it and like a curtain is being lifted and then another curtain is being lifted and it's just, you're just learning a little bit at a time. And it's frustrating in the book as well as the Mm -hmm. reader. So I can't imagine what it'd be like for, for Harry to be, to be living in that. And actually something that Hermione is so present in this book. Ron isn't really anywhere. No. He, he has no major, I mean, like the major storyline for him. He's is like that a support. He, yeah. And, that he, and then he gets on the Quidditch team is yep. the main, the main thing. I mean, maybe you can't, the book is very long. Like, is there room for and He's a prefect, he, uh, which, yes. which does impact his and Harry's relationship very yes. subtly. That's yeah. true. Oh yeah. Big time. And that also Ron's big, plot story in the whole thing is in the seventh book and him becoming a prefect mm-hmm. and the effect that that has on Harry being a better Quidditch player than him all of that leads into that story but it is kind of um yeah interesting that Ron has kind of no opinions no he's just always trying to not get in a fight with Harry really isn't he, he just wants yeah. to which if I was Hermione I'd be like for god's sake Ron have a fucking opinion all right am I allowed to swear <laughs> absolutely I always put the explicit okay. <laughs> uh, feature on this Thanks podcast. Well, yeah, I don't know. I guess I hadn't really thought about talking about Ron very much because well, as no, you because say, he wasn't he's say. Not present in the story. Man. But he, I guess he just struck me as not too dumb to follow what's going on, but not as smart as the other people who are following what's going on. And so he's uh, self-conscious about his opinions. He's self-conscious about his ability. 
he's probably like dealing with the fact that Harry is the you know boy of destiny and Hermione is the smartest kid in school like he might have a little bit of imposter syndrome going mm. on in this triumvirate well it's not an imposter syndrome he is the weak one out <laughs> that's he is the true weak link right something that I love in the fourth book for example is I love his and Harry's relationship like when him and Harry aren't friends and it's mm. really hurting them both for them not to be together and then the bit where Ron comes to him in the tent after the first task and is like I think someone's trying to do you in and they just instantly forgive each other and mm-hmm. then they're just there and then they're bantering and then they're having that whole thing I like I, I think that is such a I think that's one of the really great things about the book is that relationship because that relationship is very real I think the relationship that Harry and Hermione have is great but I, I, I don't know how real that is. I don't think that that's mm. something you're seeing in real life. Whereas Harry and Ron, like I know those boys, I know that relationship that they have. I mean, it's not, it's, I, it's nothing remarkable. But I just, I, I love that that bit of light relief that you get. Of again, there is a line in this book which I think is the funniest line in the whole book, and I just, which is from Ron. That is a little bit missing from the book. I would say his mm. sort of his and Harry's friendship. What's the line? Oh, the line is after they've done their, uh, they've just done their divination owl mm. and they are very pleased that they're never going to have to do it again and ron says i don't care if my tea leaves say die ron die i'm throwing them in the bin where they belong and it's just and it's the way stephen fry delivers it is just i laugh every time uh, i hear it it's, that is a great line that is a great line yes their their relationship is believable sorry something you said about harry and hermione it's possible that it's unrealistic that teenage boys and girls can platonically be that sort of like intertwined and respectful of each other ultimately, Mm -hmm. even though they squabble. But I would say it's not impossible between siblings. I do think I've had relationships similar to Harry and Hermione's with my sister. Mm -hmm. I think that's possible. Someone you're close in age with who you are like fundamentally never really thinking about having some sort of like sexual encounter with Mm -hmm. is then you are in a different zone with that person and it almost would have been more believable if Hermione was his sister yeah totally like like his literal sister yeah in the books because that is kind of the relationship that they have for the plot necessity even if it's not as believable in real life are you Harry or Hermione and me with your sister (laughs) (laughs) Are you the wise one or are you the the brave doer? I think one of the great things about this book is that you see yourself in a bunch of different characters, different parts of yourself. I was action-oriented, like Harry, but I also liked to read books like Hermione more than Harry did. And I was sports-obsessed, like Ron. So there are elements of all of these characters' personalities that I identified with, and maybe that's part of the genius of it, is that any different character you can... Like, I saw Seamus's point of view in this book, even though it's not called Seamus Finnegan and the Mima is the best. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I still saw his point of view. I can see Snape's point of view. I think that's one of the great things about insightful writing. Is the the ability to adopt multiple points of view well is so difficult. Yeah, she really articulates them all very yeah. nicely, doesn't she? Um, okay, so Ron doesn't really exist in this book. Can yes. I talk about a bit of the book that I wish didn't exist? <laughs> of course. Grop. Yeah. Pointless. Gross. I hate it. It doesn't need to be there. And I know that he kind of helps them at the end. But you know he doesn't because Umbridge gets taken off by the centaur. It's a exactly. giant problem. 
Yeah, I, I wish that him. joke didn't exist. Like Hagrid, <laughs> Hagrid is obviously lovely guy. He's quite irritating. He's one of my more irritating characters, but obviously I have a lot of love for him because of the love that he and Harry has. And also I love the idea of just trudging down to Hagrid's heart on a Saturday morning. Sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but this whole Grawp thing, I think it takes up so much time. Like the book is very long, if you lost the Grawp thing, I don't think I don't think it would have been any worse for it. Okay. You could have had Hagrid going to visit the giants and coming back you, and being yeah. battered. You and need then, Hagrid gone yes. to increase Harry's isolation. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Totally. But you that don't... Works. Like, obviously, Hagrid is searching for his family. He is an orphan, or might as well be an orphan as well. We don't know what happens to his mum. I think we find out in this book that she's died. I want to meet Hagrid's dad. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's also, just like 5'10". I'd be like, whoa. Yeah. That's kind of a freaky thing. I feel like I sometimes see a meme, which is like, Hagrid's dad was normal size, getting with a fully-fledged giant, like, what is going on there? <laughs> That's anyway. a scary thought, really. It's very funny. Yeah. But yeah, the Grawp, I, I, don't, I don't like it. I don't enjoy mm-hmm. reading it. I skip over it wherever possible. I just, I, I don't want it. So in your, your rewriting of this, how are Harry and Hermione rescued from the centaurs at the end without Grawp? I don't know, Luna? Thestrals? I don't know. Some another way. But then you Cold rob logic, man. We we don't But then you rob the Thestral flight. I guess maybe not. You can Well maybe them the both. Thestrals come and maybe Centaurs and Thestrals have a long standing hatred of one another. I don't know. Mm. I think that you can get around that quite easily just by talking about how different groups can come together through, you know. Hating of Umbridge? The centa- yeah, the centaurs. The centaurs no. run off to get... Um, they're running... Umbridge runs away and they follow her. No, they are respectful of youth and they recognise that the kids aren't out there to hurt them and there's mutual respect and they go their separate ways and they agree to stick to their own territories. Done. Yes, because actually... Hermione, who's generally a very respectful person, she makes two big faux pas in this book about centaurs she refers to when Firenze becomes the divination teacher Mm -hmm. she says I've never liked horses and I'm like that is really that is rude that is rude that is derogatory that is not something that I Hermione who is campaigning for elf rights and thinks all people should be respectful read that was something that stuck out for me Mm -hmm. I was like that is a that is a bigoted line yes it is and then when she says again oh we just thought you would drive her off for us to the centaurs when they run off Umbridge. I'm a bit like, this doesn't feel... I mean, maybe she was in a pickle and wasn't thinking clearly. I actually felt that that humanized her a little bit. because Maybe not the first part. I don't remember the context of that. Maybe she was just being stupid. But she seemed scared. Like, it's it's, it's a tense... Yeah. It's a tense scenario. That bit's fair. Where the centaurs are there and she's (laughs) feeling like she needs to tell them her intentions... And then hasn't totally thought through every uh, like side effect interpretation of her intentions from their point of view. And that's pretty normal. And actually, I think that that's a feature of the books that Harry helps her with, is how to handle the high-stress uh, real-life scenarios. I mean, why that's the reason he does... Dumbledore's army like yes, he teaches them because he's the one who as when what is his line when you say it like that it all sounds impressive yeah <laughs> you know uh even though it's like at it's some level true and your wand and your nerve or something like yeah. that. yeah 
Yeah. So I, th- at least the second one, I would chalk up to. I think that a stressful situation for a young person. I mean, she's still just fifteen. Yeah. To go back to Grohl, why? Well, why is he there? What What is he doing there? How, wh- I think it's a bit of color. It's plot. Twofold. Hagrid needed to not be there to make Harry sadder mm-hmm. or more alone, and uh, it's how she decided to rescue Harry and Hermione from the centaurs. Mm. I think. There are better ways to achieve both of those things. Well, I write a letter, <laughs> I guess. Oh, I will. <laughs> um, There's not many bits in the seven, in the whole of the seven books that I'm like, we could just completely remove this. Mm-hmm. Because even there's things like someone like Peeves, who is uh, very rarely does, drives the, the plot forward at all, but he's wonderful color. Oh, he's great mm-hmm. color. Yeah. And there are so many other things like that. Um, so is there no, and I'm asking this not, because I think this, but just as I was wondering, and you know the books better, is there no sort of like extra feeling you get about Hagrid knowing he has a brother, knowing that he has someone that no. he wants no. to protect? His, his actions are entirely expected. You know, he behaves exactly as you'd expect he'd behave if he had a brother. And we know that. That's we true. knew that before we meet Grawp, and therefore we don't need to meet Grawp. Fair. And I think there's a lot of, I think the relationship between Hagrid and Harry is special because they they don't have family. Like mm. I don't think I agree with Dan. I'd like you know, he 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 was always going to go so far beyond what is to be expected to protect his family or to connect with his family. I didn't need Grop there to tell okay. me that. Yeah. Well, fuck Grop. Fuck yeah. Grop, man. Cut it out. So you said something a little bit earlier about Molly that I wasn't originally going to talk about. At least not in this book. Well, I guess it makes more sense to talk about, but you know, serendipity of conversation. I think it's different if people who aren't particularly positively inclined to Harry don't want to include him because he's young or stupid. But certainly all of the Order of the Phoenix minus Sirius's inclination, there's this idea of, I guess, benevolent paternalism going on, right? Mm -hmm. We're not going to tell you because you're young and we know better and you don't. We need to protect you from the truth or the parts of the truth that will be difficult to you. And I guess this is, for me personally, this is one of the hardest philosophical things to kind of mull over is, um, do you have opinions on withholding true things from people for their own good? Like, when does that sit right or not sit right Yeah. for you? I don't know. So I don't have children. I don't really know any children. I've never interacted with children. Um, <laughs> You've never interacted yeah, with children? Not really. Like, As an adult? No, not really. I just like, mm-hmm. there was, I've never been in a position where something like that would have come up or been, that I personally would have been involved in that decision making. Um, you know, you work with children a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that people have made decisions about what you were able to do as a child to protect your feelings or whatever, or what you. So I find Mrs. Weasley in this very frustrating. I can understand, you know, I understand what she provides in terms of the plot mm-hmm. um, and also in terms of just being an, a slightly overbearing mother, um, you know, one who worries a lot, who's very anxious, all that kind of things. Um, I think probably if you laid the facts out in front of me, if this was a real situation, I probably would have thought that 
she wasn't far off in terms of you know just because you're just because you want to know something doesn't mean that you should know something and actually there are conversations that are for adults and they are 15 and when you're 15 you feel like you're 25 but actually you're closer to 10 years old than Mm -hmm. being an adult really so I think from a child's point of view it feels very unfair but I think now I'm an adult I can I can understand a bit more I actually think the relationship between Harry and Mrs Weasley is something that deserves a bit more than the books give it yeah like she 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 loves yeah Yeah. she loves him like a child she loves him like one of her own children and he he never even uses her first name like I've always found that a bit weird to be honest I can understand why he's so annoyed at her but I can also see see her point of view and especially where they are in the arc of the books you know they don't know what's going on with Voldemort like they they know more than him but really they don't know anything mm-hmm. so even though he's like tell me more I guess in the way they're sitting having their order of the phoenix conversations they're probably a little bit like don't have that much to share anyway just sharing like oh I'm going here I'm doing that which is not necessarily something that Harry would would or should know anyway no I don't think Harry and the other teenagers need to un- need to know about the day-to-day ins and outs of how the order is operating i think they absolutely do need to be told broadly what they're up against and the reason for that is that they can take action under their own steam and they can have great effects as they show later on in the book you know they have the power to affect the plot for a better for lack of a better term Therefore, they need to be. Uh, mm-hmm. Therefore, they need to be told how their actions can affect things. Yeah, I and think it's a if, dereliction of duty. Yes, if Dumbledore had been more upfront with Harry, then Sirius probably wouldn't have died. One hundred percent. I can completely understand Mrs. Weasley's point of view, though. I know mothers like that. Oh, I totally. But she, would have but made she still the goes about it in the wrong way. You know, they're they're they are teenagers. They are fully formed persons in their own rights they're not children and just saying no is not good enough oh totally totally okay so i'll i'll shift the frame a bit because i think this is a really interesting concept of Mm -hmm. uh, paternalism Mm -hmm. and then benevolent paternalism so there's a i think it's a i don't know if it's a chinese film but it's a film about chinese characters from about four or five years ago called the farewell yeah i've seen it have you seen it yeah you've seen it have you no, I've not seen it, but uh, I have listened to the... A grandma uh, the, the, the who has terminal to. cancer. It's yeah. based on an episode of This American Life. Okay, right. Have you listened to that? No, no, no. Okay. no. I, I'm only tangentially. But the ph- philosophical idea mm-hmm. is in there of like, so this grandma has a terminal illness. They don't tell her. They gather the family together. They tell everybody in the family so that they can say goodbye. But I think it's like a, some other party she thinks it's for. Yes, mm-hmm. it's they organize someone's wedding. Right. And everyone's crying at the wedding and she's like, why are you all crying? (laughs) I personally struggle with the idea of like withholding information for your own good from adults. Mm -hmm. But they do it for her good because they think that it will prolong her life. And then I think the end of the episode and the end of the film, she has only been given a few months to live and ends up living years beyond that. They believe it's because she doesn't know that she's not well. That sounds like Hollywood to me, though. It's It's based (laughs) on a real life story. I think that's of my memory. Anyway, whatever. It, it, it might be, and and I, there's no way to know if that's the reason. But I guess the point that I'm making is that than... they're doing it because they think it's in the other person's best interest, not well, necessarily because it's in their own best interest. Paternalism always is. Mm-hmm. So, I I just think it's a meaty philosophical concept of 
withholding information for someone else's good. So do I. Again, we're talking Harry Potter or a particular film with a very specific context. Like, what about editorial boards of newspapers or media organizations choosing to not run a story given the timing? Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. I think it's arrogance in the extreme. Uh, normally, I tend to be a little utilitarian in, in my sort of approach to these sort of things and think that whatever leads to the the best outcome for the most for the greatest number of people is the best way to go however we can't know that going in in a lot of cases Mm -hmm. mrs weasley certainly can't know that and ultimately her approach ends up resulting in the death of sirius right that's not mrs weasley's (laughs) fault but that is the approach taken by the adult there's a causal chain that you can follow logically there's a causal chain yeah it's just arrogance on the part of those in charge, the adults in the room, to think that A, just because they declare something will mean that everyone will follow suit, uh, and B, that they will be able to predict the events as they unfold, and C, that they have some sort of moral high ground. you know, And just mm-hmm. because they think they know better as a result of their experience means that other people should toe the line. I think you are having a stronger response to this than I am because I know you have you had this relation you had this argument with your own mother many times yes <laughs> <laughs> about many times about her talking to you like you're a child yeah or whatever yeah sure. I mean that's not there's nothing to say but I I find your argument a bit well at least strong. I'm being consistent eh? yeah I, I I find your argument a bit strong I think fifteen is really young. Like, really young. Sure, sure. 15. I agree. I, I think uh, anything with kids or minors is almost its own category because people's emotions are so much more heightened when it comes to young people and as well as um, it's more influential because their brains are still developing much more than adults are. Yeah. So I, I would park that for a second and just bring up a, a real-life example of this that seems to be has what happened to the point of arrogance where the New York Times, I think it was, um, has memos saying to not run the Hunter Biden laptop story because it was just before the election. I guess the implication is the fear that if this is the case, people will vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. who yeah. wouldn't have because Joe Biden's son well, like the Hillary Clinton emails. Illegal. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. To me, I guess my, this is my personal feeling. It's it's a bit cynical about human nature, where it's like, well, you think this would be the reason someone would vote for Trump versus Biden? Yeah, well, to paraphrase Tommy Lee Jones in uh, Men in Black, yeah. a person is smart, but people are dumb. <laughs> so I think, well, that, I think rules are different when you're considering the population at large. To, to, to uh, a few people Tommy who Lee Jones know. is actually paraphrasing Nietzsche. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Where it says uh, uh, madness in uh, individuals is rare, but in groups, organizations, and committees, it is the norm. Very good. <laughs> That's one example of news stories because then once you get to the level of institutions does the ministry of magic have it certainly has an interest in but does it have the right to withhold information about voldemort's existence to the people does the daily Pro- this is something we haven't really talked about much but like does the daily prophet have a responsibility of re- reporting the truth about voldemort if it's going to be like pretty inconvenient to or or rumors mm-hmm. yeah it's just a weird fact, and maybe this is more of a modern, I guess it's always been the case in news, but because it's so much more fractured now, transpartisan credibility to me is really important 
in an institution. Oh, yeah? <laughs> There's a joke I heard Hitchens say one time. Mm-hmm. Christopher, not Peter. Hey, Christopher, yes. <laughs> My favorite Hitchens. <laughs> the one that matters. He said, if you hear the Pope saying he believes in God, you say, oh, the Pope's doing his job today. <laughs> if you hear the Pope say he's having doubts about the existence of God, you say, oh, I wonder if the Pope's onto something. Mm-hmm. The idea being, if someone says something not in their interest, it might be more likely to be true. Or there's something else going on. But truth is something out there. If an institution reports on something that maybe isn't in its the interest of its readership's taste, there might be something worth following up there. And I and I wonder if that's something that uh, the Daily Prophet might look into. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a reporting source in the Harry Potter world. Yeah, I think we can separate the responsibility that the Daily Prophet and the Ministry of Magic have to the magical population at large, and the emotions of Mrs. Weasley as someone who's very... Sure. Because she's very protective of all of her... It's not just Harry. She doesn't Mm -hmm. want any of them to know. She wants to protect probably all of the children as well. I think she's just a very maternal figure who Mm -hmm. thinks that the adults should do with this and the children should focus on going to school and doing their exams and having nice lives, and it comes from a place of love. Benevolent maternalism. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, right. Benevolent maternalism. It's an interesting point about, like how different philosophical principles get based on scale. Yeah, yes. totally. It... And I would say that you and I, so for dear listeners, Dan and I are in a relationship. We've known each other for a very long time. And something that I have learned of you is that you prefer to live much more by rules. And I am much, when we have these conversations about... By rules, what you mean by right, principle. By principles, sorry, principles. What is right and what is wrong. I am would say I'm, I'm more lean into situation dependency whereas i think you you have more specific principles principle versus pragmatism yes i'm a very pragmatic person yeah so yes i i would think this makes sense to hear you talk in the way that you did about um mrs weasley and Mm. the arrogant paternalism of the characters (laughs) (laughs) i I, it's scale clearly makes a difference right and personal relationships make a difference. Mm-hmm. And the capabilities of the listener makes a difference. And people act differently in a group than they do individually. And all of that has to be taken into account. But to take a, a massive sidestep and avoid the question you're really asking or asking me to expand on. Perfect. And go back, and go back to the earlier discussion about this being the book in which J.K. Rowling really takes on the idea of bureaucracy being good. When they do the interview with Rita Skeeter, and Rita Skeeter calls Hermione a silly little girl or something for expecting the Daily Prophet to act in a way which benefits its readers, in, rather than act in a way which benefits the Daily Prophet, and to publish a story which it has no interest in publishing. Rita Skeeter's a brilliant character. I love it's her. True. She's wonderful. She's one of the best parts of the fourth book. And it's great that she comes back in the fifth book and has this. Yeah, it was a nice little cameo, wasn't it? Yeah. I actually find Luna incredibly annoying, to be quite honest. I think she's wor- she's worse than I remember. They softened her in the films. Mm. And having not read the fifth book in a while, just the- she's got a kind of a haughtiness to her in this book that I find very irritating. She's not someone I would... If she was real, her and I would not be friends. We would be at opposite ends of the... Would you be hiding her stuff? No, I wouldn't be hiding her stuff. I think I would be in Ravenclaw. I've come down on it and I think I would probably be in Ravenclaw. So I would know her. She would irritate me, as she does in the book. And I imagine she would in real life. 
and her being at that the interview with Rita Skeeter the things that she says about the quibbler I'm just like my god you're annoying it's a travesty <laughs> she's not in Hufflepuff because she's smart sure what do you think Luke what, did, 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 how do you think it handles it I this, think the, this, I think that this I, given is an archetypal story. Yes, the fact that the maternalism, yeah, slash paternalism, of the heroic adults fundamentally contributes to negativity. Clearly, more than positivity, Clearly. at least shows Rowling's opinion. I was dispatched. and you know, one time, one of my years working in Calgary, I got to join a leadership greenhouse. <laughs> group with my boys and girls clubs of calgary and it was mostly like masturbatory but <laughs> but there was one interesting session where the ceo of boys and girls club went to a whiteboard and said okay what's your opinion about the world and people specifically talking about the people who work for your company do you think that there are mostly good people and some bad apples or are they people mostly shitty and they need incentives to be good and he says, a lot of how you lead an organization will be on your kind of like basic assumption about what people are like. Mm -hmm. I guess because I'm someone who would want to be told all the facts, no matter how unpleasant they might be, I inevitably feel like that's the right thing to do. As we all kind of have these biases about like, well, if I'm this way, this is the way it should be. And do you expect that from your interactions on the small scale right up to your interactions with you know, big bureaucracy? Uh, no, but that's not because that's more like a realism mm -hmm. than okay. how I would want to be. Like, I want to treat people at a level where I would want to be treated, not in the trite, like, golden rule kind of thing. But if we take Harry Potter as the idea here, like, this kind of, like, not telling people what's going on to the best of our ability, and, and more fundamentally from, like, the ministry's perspective, not inquiring as best as we can, throwing all our resources at figuring this problem out based on the fact that Dementors attacked him, means that it's going to be worse later. The ending of this book is as bad as it is because of this paternalism, mm -hmm. I think, as you as you alluded to, and, and I feel that way, I guess. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. I guess just to play devil's advocate, there are times when you don't tell someone everything that perhaps you could and it works out to be just fine. Well, this grandmother in the Chinese movie. Or well, the, yeah. The American movie about the Chinese people. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, in real life, we don't have um, a denouement like yeah. a book does where <laughs> there's a dark lord attacking us and we have to figure that out and i mean you work with children mm -hmm. so i don't know i mean how, what what age is the eldest child that you work with uh, 12 12 okay, my inclination is to be as honest with them as they are actually psychologically able to get mm -hmm. and it, do you think a 12 year old is able to understand the concepts that they may not have the experience to deal with the situation, therefore they should follow the advice of an adult? Or do you think they should be lied or told, not told the entire truth and just forced to follow the will of an adult? That is a hard question based on like how horrible the situation you're in. Yeah, I don't know. If a 12-year-old has cancer, do you tell them? I would. I would understand people who didn't, I yeah. think. Because that's hard. 
a lot of times with the kids I work with, <laughs> when they want to do something, I say, I don't lie to them. I don't think. I say, no, you can't do that because it doesn't respect the rules of our club yeah. or of our situation. But are you presenting the rule of the club as being some inviable, you know, something written on a gold tablet somewhere? You can't break the rule because you can't break the rule. Or do you say I, you can't break this rule because... We try and make sure we have a nice environment for all the kids. No, I actually the rules. Okay, this I like this question because this would take us on a philosophical tangent that would be totally uninteresting to the listeners of this podcast. (laughs) I will put it to you this way: academic philosophy has put a lot of effort and work into differentiating what they call deontology and consequentialism, which is Mm -hmm. like principles versus. Uh, outcome. I guess I would say that I actually think that they're the same. I think the reason we have the principles that we have is because that they are more often than not give good consequences. If the principle of um, fairness led to misery and murder and rape, we wouldn't have that as a principle. Mm-hmm. I think that there's an extremely apprehendable downstream effect of good consequences from good principles. And so the fact that they are argued about differently in philosophy departments, in my opinion, is mostly so that philosophers figure out how to still have jobs more than it's a conceptual difference of reality. But that again, yeah, very I guess different podcast. To come back to the book, I think we're all in agreement that Harry should have been told more. The only point that I was making is that I can, I can understand. Molly's heart was in the right place. Yeah. I think she was lacking a little bit in judiciousness, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I her judgment that's... was a little off. I agree. She she gone too harsh. far. You're going to say I'm a little harsh, but I think yeah, I don't care that her her heart was in the right place. It was it was wrong. Yeah. You know, she doesn't apologize to Harry. Okay, she doesn't realize. Does she never? No, not I, once in all the I books. Don't think so, not no. for trying to hide the truth from him. Right. You know, Dumbledore says that right away when they have their meeting at the uh-huh. end of the book. He says, "This is my fault." He gives Harry the opportunity to to rant and to break his stuff and to hit him and to shout and do all these things because he knows it's his fault. But Mo- but just to just to Molly go ju- just to go to Molly Weasley's defense, she's probably following Dumbledore's lead. I can't imagine Molly Weasley, although she Dumbledore is the CEO of this book. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like she she's not a decision maker. She is she has her opinions, but I think that her opinions are formed by what I imagine would have happened is Dumbledore said, Harry's, I'm not, well, I don't think, I don't know if he would have been like, I'm not talking to Harry. But I do, I think that she would have been following his his lead. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know what? The last 20 minutes of this shows me how fucking complicated this book is. Yeah. Because it's yeah. very layered. Like the yes, relationship types lead to a lot of discussion. And maybe this is why, you know, it's an archetypal fascinating stories there's probably never-ending podcasts about harry potter and i don't think they'd ever get boring no no there's, there's so, so much, much in it. there are so many different so many different things you can yeah dive into on that uh in the spirit of keeping things moving though i do have a few notes about dumbledore mm. which is someone we haven't we've talked a little bit about more absent than not mm-hmm. i think this is his least integrated book in terms well, of the plot? He's probably he's not really in the other books, but he's noticeably he's he's written in as being absent. Right. Like in that's the a good point. First, second, More third consciously book, absent. Yeah. Yep. He like appears at the end to sort of offer some sage words of wisdom. The things of note that came to my mind with him is that he's there for Harry 
when Harry is experiencing something that's beyond his ken, which is his trial, right? Like he's mm-hmm. going to be there for Harry when it's something Harry's not ready for yet. And then he does apologize to him, which as someone I, working with kids, there's very little that makes kids less mad at you than when you say sorry to them when you've done something to them. Because the majority of the relationship type is I'm the authority figure. I have power over you. And so if I fuck up and I say it, the credibility is pretty huge because they have to listen to me. I could get away with not saying it pretty much. So the fact that I choose to, I think, aids our relationship. Totally. Maybe it's as simple as Dumbledore should have told Harry more, should have believed in Harry more, because maybe this is the most tragic form of paternalism in the book, right? Is Dumbledore to Harry. It, it also makes no sense. I think it's a, I think it's a plot hole again. <laughs> so you don't buy Dumbledore's excuse that he cared more about Harry's happiness than telling him the truth? I... Well, no, that he thought that Dumble, if he told Harry anything, Voldemort would know what they knew sure what but why can't dumbledore write harry a letter and because say then it's in his head why can't he say i'm sorry there are reasons that i don't think that we should be close together i would ask you to trust me yeah and i would ask you to trust my fair. wisdom and experience that's maybe it. that's what he's apologizing for yeah. yeah he should yeah that would have been totally that would have been much easier the book would have been smooth smooth sailing totally anything else else about him before i love that I think this is something we've spoken about a little bit, Dan, is that we don't get... You're told that Dumbledore is the guy. He, oh, yeah. He'll get you. You you haven't got a chance, and we don't He's get... He's behind the chocolate frog cards, and we have no idea why, other yeah. than 12 uses of dragon's blood. Mm. Yeah, and I know Dumbledore is represented in those terrible movies by Jude Law. Don't like those. Anyway, I love any show of Dumbledore actually being that thing. So when they're in his office, and he stuns them all, Without even it just gets away. breaking yeah. sweat. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. That's really great. And also the relationship between him and Professor McGonagall, I always liked as well. Oh, God. Yeah. The and love then, and trust between yeah. them. And when McGonagall gets the stunners during the OWLs, that was very, very stressful. And the way the fight happened with Voldemort was very, very Dumbledore, wasn't it? He's not, they're not trying to kill each other. Well, they're not sending killing curses after mm. each other. You know? He's getting all these figures to jump in the way and absorb all the, uh, uh, all, the, all the curses. It's just, it's fantastic. You know, and I noticed in this book, Dumbledore's the only character that calls Voldemort Tom. Yeah, oh. yeah, that was fantastic. Well. That's a lovely time. Yeah, yeah. It's Which, like, and it comes up in the sixth book. He says it's, uh, in one of the flashbacks, he says it's... Uh, you know, old teachers, you'll have to forgive me. I'll always use your your name. Yeah, yeah like he, he still sees the part of him that was before Voldemort. Mm-hmm. Oh, that okay, that was what I was going for. Yeah. yeah. I think he's using it to try and like take him down a peg or two. Yeah. Or it could be exactly. multifaceted. Like, I'm, yeah, not, yeah. I'm not I, afraid I, of you. The way that you presented that, I, that actually hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, you, you, you're thinking that he's seeing the humanity in... Well, there in, was a moment well, in Tom Riddle's life before he was Voldemort. Yes. And, Vol- and and Dumbledore knew that person. Yes. Why is it that no matter how horrible a person is, there's always somebody in their life who like cares about them? Almost always. It's usually parents, maybe a sibling. Even terrible people, and it's not an excuse for terrible people, but terrible people were something before they were terrible. Yeah. Even if they were just like a five-year-old. So you think that Dumbledore is, is showing Voldemort the same compassion that he shows Draco Malfoy in, in, in the next book? For yeah, example. and I mean, it's implausible in Harry Potter, but imagine someone reminding Voldemort of who he was before Voldemort 
makes Voldemort remember who he was. Before. <laughs> okay, yeah. I don't. I that's not what I. I hear where you're coming from, and I get that. I actually think he's trying to show that he's not afraid. He's yeah, like, I'm not. Too. I'm not gonna meet you where you want me to. Yeah. I'm gonna. He's demonstrating. I think that he has. Uh, he has a wisdom which which Voldemort lacks. Hmm. Yeah. Sure. And that that's probably more accurate to the plot. Mm. Trying like to it. Dumbledore's a carve out a feeling. I think I think in the sixth book, when Tom Riddle comes to visit him to ask for a job, and he calls him Tom, I think that's. And there are words to that effect in the book where Dumbledore is saying, "I remember who you were before this." Yeah. I think in this maybe, as you say, mm-hmm. it's more to the plot effect that he's just trying to be like, "I'm not." You're not going to take not, me out, yeah. Yeah, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not going to meet you where you want me to be. I'm strong enough. I'm going to call you Tom, yeah. yeah. There was one character I wanted us to dwell on a little bit. So, okay. plot holes, sure. There are plot holes plenty in Harry Potter because they're kids' book. But I do think what arguably the best part about Harry Potter are the characters. They're so lovable and so memorable. And to me... This book, if you wanted to give it an alternative title, it's Harry Potter and the Rise of Neville Longbottom. Because mm. to me, Neville is a punchline until this book, where he becomes a friend and an ally. Um, and a cog in the plot in his own right. A cog in a plot, for sure. But he's the last one with Harry fighting the Death Eaters. I can't remember, like the brain attacks Ron. Yeah, yeah. There's a spell on Hermione. The other two are he's, out of he's, the picture. He's, he's with him in the, the, the theater of death or whatever that is. With and the, what's more courageous than him telling Harry to not give up the prophecy, even if Bellatrix does the same thing to him that she did to his parents? Yeah. yeah. It's brilliant. Well, he's just like and to write a secondary hero like yeah. this. And when they go to um, St. Mungo's Mm. in in the Christmas, that's another bit of magical, you know, wallpaper Mm -hmm. that um, J.K. Rowling does, which I love. Again, there's a, I remember when they're taking the elevator in St. Mungo's and they're saying it's like level two, the level of, I I have to find in the book because it's just funny. It's just funny, funny things that bear no thing on the plot that she adds to it. And then when they see... Gilderoy Lockhart. Oh my goodness, Gilderoy Lockhart, one of my absolute favorite characters in the whole series. I just think he's wonderful. And then they see him again. And then they see Neville on that ward. And that you get a bit of more insight into Neville's backstory and mm-hmm. the role that his parents played and his relationship with the Dark Arts and how actually he probably cares just as much about Voldemort as Harry does. And this is really the book that you get into that. Totally. The bit, it's Harry and, Harry and uh, Neville are the ones left. Uh, fighting the Death Eaters, you know, it could have been Neville or Harry right yeah. at the beginning. Right, and to be honest, it had it been Neville who had been the chosen one rather than Harry, it probably still would have been Harry and Neville fighting. Except they would have been fighting over Neville's prophecy instead. You know, yeah. right? And we'd have the Neville Longbottom books. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I know it's it's not Neville or Harry's prophecy. They're both involved in the prophecy, but it's brilliant that they're together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he was... but he's kind of done dirty, right? Their relationship. I don't think it gets addressed well enough, uh, to be honest, because it, Neville is quite, you know, kind of extraordinary. And mm-hmm. we, we, I think later on in the books, we have this, we have some slightly, some nice moments with Luna where they kind of go, okay, you're sure she's a bit kooky, but actually when push came to shove, she was with us in the ministry and there is recognition of that. 
And correct me if I'm wrong, Lid, but I don't think that they have the same... No, so at the beginning of the sixth book, they're on the train and Harry sits with Luna and Neville. Okay. And Neville goes, oh, they're all looking at you. And he was like, no, they're looking at us because okay. you were there with me. So I remember that entirely. But right. Neville doesn't, Neville doesn't have it. He doesn't, Luna is more involved in the sixth book than Neville yeah. is for sure. Yeah. But the resolution of the story doesn't do Neville bad, I don't think. Like, one of my most uh, lasting visualizations of the films is Neville bringing them back into Hogwarts from Aberforth's place, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it says something like, welcome back or where you been? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, just Mm -hmm. like that. Like, he's so a leader. Yes, he is. In that scene. He's recognizing peers that he loves. Yeah. coming back into the fold. Yeah. I'm realizing that a book this big probably could easily have two parts yeah. of episodes, so I'll I'll rapid-fire these sections. Just to, to follow yes. on from Neville, though, characters very lovable who are um, in this book. Something, Not Grob. No, Dobby. Sure. Dobby's role in this book. I, I've got a lot of love for the house elves throughout the whole thing, and I actually, reading this book again, or listening to this book again, for the first time in a long time, I just sort of realised how much of a role the house elves play in driving the plot forward, you know, Dobby finding the room mm-hmm. of requirement, and then all the things that Dobby and Creature, and, and Creature, of course, Creature oh, yeah. plays a huge role in this book. Yeah, I love the house elves. I love that they're in there. I think they're a great addition. That's one of the other reasons why I see them as, like, the equivalent to R2-D2. <laughs> like, R2-D2 is always pushing the plot forward. Yeah. I don't know Wars. anything about Star Wars, so I can't comment. Yeah, well, I do. They both have round heads. (laughs) And shoot lightsabers out there. That's right. And And, can fly. And have rocket-propelled feet. (laughs) I made a note about one of the things that I liked about Sirius is that even though he comes from a pure-blood family, he's able to transcend that, like Mm -hmm. the Weasleys. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it was a little harder for him because his family wasn't that way. And he chose to not be bigoted Mm -hmm. like a lot of his relatives did. Which is, um, to me, emblematic of like choosing to overcome where you come from. The things about your upbringing that you don't think are worth carrying with you into the future. And, and having to like actually confront people, like your family members, about that. I know Sirius as a character is not the most lovable. He has his own things about him that are... Mm-hmm. Foibles. Yes, he's, he's a very flawed character. But I thought it was interesting that, again, from an archetypal point of view, he was a character that was able to eschew the hatred of his relations towards the rest of the wizarding world and muggle well, he, world. He kind of chose his own family, right, in a mm-hmm. way that most people don't get the opportunity to do. And he chose James and, and, and Lupin, and he chooses Harry as well, and then, and then he dies. And I think... Before I reread it, I thought that the relationship between Harry and Sirius was a little unbelievable. I didn't really get why Harry was so distraught over the death of Sirius. But on rereading it again, I thought it just made so much sense. And as I say, it left me crying at the end of the uh, mm-hmm. yeah at I the would, end of the audiobook. I would say that the adult that I've had the most frustration with reading the book is Sirius. Yeah, you, you know, would though, wouldn't you? It is. It's it's my it's my personality. Like when he is saying to Harry that, you know, this is oh, this is what would have made it fun for me and James and stuff like that, and he's not able to be the parent that Harry wants him to be as well. Not even like Harry is looking for someone to be steady. Yeah. And someone he's looking for he's looking for Lupin, really. He wants 
Mm-hmm. And obviously Sirius can't be like that because, I mean, he's been in prison for 13 years and now he's locked up in a house. So it's not that I think Sirius could have acted any differently because I think, again, talking about all the trauma that he has had, I think it's to be expected, but I find it so frustrating to read it that he can't be a different adult. Um, I find it really mm. sad. I mean, I, th- I, I think Sirius is a wonderful character as well. And again, yeah, I think the love that he and Harry have for one another is very sweet. Reading, when I remember reading this for the first time, this one really got me. I remember reading that and just being absolutely distraught mm-hmm. that he that he had died. You know, this might be a weird connection. It just occurred to me. The character that he maybe seems similar to me is Draco in that... I hated, not the initial meeting, but when I first, the first book, you hate Draco. Second book, you meet Draco's dad. You're a little bit like, oh, okay, this would suck. Mm -hmm. This is your upbringing. And he's a child and he, you know, you you parrot what you know from your parents or your immediate circle. Probably would not have wanted to talk to me when I was 14 about the nature of existence. Mm -hmm. I had different opinions than I had now because I was a product of my environment. But I would say by the seventh book, Draco actually kind of changes and becomes, if not a hero, like left to his own choice, he makes some heroic decisions in the scheme of things. And I think it was a heroic decision at some level for Sirius to not follow down the path of the bigotry of his family that would have been easier in his relations with them. Totally. He probably could have been a pretty high-ranking Death Eater if he had wanted to be, and he chose not to. And that would have been hard, I think, given his life. I think the only slight difference between them is although you meet Lucius Malfoy in the second book and you think that, oh, that must be hard, I think we know that Narcissa and Lucius Malfoy love their son. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the seventh book, it becomes quite clear that they, they don't care. They just want to know what Draco is. And whereas for Sirius, it sounds like there's no love in that family. Mm-hmm. He's not getting love from his mother and his father. So he's, it's easier to make that choice. And so Draco, who is loved by his parents, is adored by his parents, is, follows in their footsteps in the same way that perhaps you said you were a product of your environment. You know, you got love from your parents. So mm-hmm. it would make sense for you to believe what they thought so it was maybe a, maybe if Sirius had had parents that loved him he would have been a death eater like his brother maybe yeah I don't know what the difference yeah possibly between those two. that's a good point it depends how you look at it I guess I mean maybe it makes it even more impressive that he can oh totally uh, reject everything reject that he knows his whole family background yeah yeah my experience is it's easy to be rebellious when you're faced with the thing that may, is making you angry it's hard to like sustain that ethos into the world unless you really believe it maybe Sirius hates his parents because they don't love him and they're shitheads to him but like does he sustain the idea of like helping people and wanting to fight against Voldemort without believing it on his insides too probably not I think that would be difficult to maintain for sure I don't think I have any more uh, notes of note so final thoughts on Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix? I had, it's not really a thought, but a question to you about what it was like reading the book mm. as someone who's not from Britain, okay, who, who didn't go to boarding school. Not that I went to boarding school either, but, you know, did you... I went to homeschool. You went to... Exactly, Canada's you, version. You were homeschooled, <laughs> right? Did you feel like you learned something about Britain from the books? Was Britain and British schools and British boarding schools and British boarding school traditions, were they interesting to you? Were they a character 
in their own right? Uh, they were more in the film right, than the book. I yeah. think and that makes sense because it's more vivid yeah. and visceral. The you see it and hear and it. Yeah. To me, the British parts, and I think I think about this more because I met a lot of British friends when I was living in Korea, the uniforms, the school, but also just the kind of style of conversation. Unless I had made a lot of British friends in my 20s, I might not have realized how British it actually was, mm. the way that they talk to each other. Canadians are pretty sensitive. <laughs> we, <laughs> we are a sensitive creature. And a good chunk of the things that are very passively said between the characters in Harry Potter, I think would like sincerely microaggress many Seriously. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot I of sense because I'm absolutely gagging for someone to be mean to me yeah. since moving to Canada well you should just fuck off dude. <laughs> good one Luke I got him yeah. got him uh, sorry <laughs> sorry <laughs> to me the resist. British parts are the style of talk mm. Not necessarily the content of the communication, but the style it's presented and the the school. And then, of course, the accents and the actors, like me being meta-aware of who Dame Maggie Smith is yeah. and who Michael Gambon is yeah. and who, you know, Robbie, like just all of the actors and actresses, Alan Rickman, oh. you know, so like seeing those famous faces, I can't help but think like, wow, it's like, okay, here's Love Actually guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But again, the archetype, no, it's, tr- it's, it's universal. It's universal. Yeah. yeah. It's totally universal. So. I have just that I, I really enjoyed rereading this. I haven't reread, although I've, I haven't reread this one for a while. I've reread the fourth one and the sixth one many, many, many times and the others mm. many fewer. So, and actually I'm just holding the book that you brought here. Does it feel good? It does. I love the font is so... The it's font, perfect. It's, yeah, it really is very evocative. It's very nostalgic. It wasn't actually the lift at St. Mungo's. It was the lift when Harry is at the Ministry of Magic at yeah. the beginning. And there's just a couple of things that I'm going to read if you don't Yes, mind, of course, just, yeah. They're so funny. <laughs> like, she must have had a ball writing this. So, level seven, Department of Magical Games and Sports, incorporating the British and Irish Quidditch League Headquarters, Official Gobstones Club, and Ludicrous Patents Office. <laughs> yeah. And then, level three, Department of... Magical accidents and catastrophes, including the Accidental Magical Reversal Squad, Obliviator Headquarters, and Muggle-Worthy Excuse Committee. There's <laughs> <laughs> just these things, and they're just so, and they're just peppered throughout the books. And that's what that's my big gripe with the with the movie is that you lose the humor, mm, yeah, which yeah. I think is a very British thing as well. Is finding humor in sadness, finding humor in bad things that have happened you make a joke of it to get through it and um i think harry potter really captures that very very well yeah Yeah, i honestly think that could be an auxiliary podcast episode all in its own about the um impact of the narrator Mm -hmm. in a story like if your narration is third person you can't really achieve that in a movie there's there's no way i i recently watched a movie called the killer david fincher's new film and it's Michael Fassbender. Fassbender. It could have been a first-person narration book because we get a lot of voiceover. Whether you like that or not in a movie, it's achievable from a book. But I don't know how you would possibly get the fabric and complexity of a third-person narration in a movie. Totally. Yeah, without just being like, <laughs> well, that's what Arrested Development does. Yeah. And Actually, this is why I would always say if there's right. anyone who has only seen the films, if you like them, like the books are just so joyous. Mm-hmm. And I cannot wait 
to read them to my children and I hope if they don't like them it will be really sad um, and I have a friend who recently had only ever seen the films and she just read the books for the first time and she was like blown away by how much is in the books that's not in the films the Order of the Phoenix is a is a is a perfect example of that because it's so long and there's lots in the book not in the film oh yeah which so is true much. of all of them but I think maybe this Somehow one the Grohl most made it in unfortunately well thank you Lydia and Dan for joining me on the uh, continuing odyssey i i hope maybe you'll be around for a a, a part six perhaps see you next week <laughs> yeah. six is i would say six is maybe it's my joint favorite okay i love the half-blood prince you might not even have to reread it then no i don't think so episode. i think i i can talk along with the uh, the audiobook okay while you were reading something in there lid i thought of a trivia uh, <laughs> which i'm sure you'll know uh, so it's not a like challenging your knowledge. I just think it's a fun one. Mm-hmm. Um, what number does Arthur dial through the through the visitor entrance to get into the Ministry of Magic? God, and it's gettable based on well, once once you hear it, if you don't know, I don't. You'll, know. you'll never forget it. Is it 007? <laughs> <laughs> it's not 007? Is it something like that? I don't know. Is it like a British reference? I, I, I don't so know. So the, the number, and I, I, I only remember it, this does, because... Does I, it spell magic? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Uh, so yeah. it's 62442. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And I remember it because I did like a hundred quizzes at work getting ready for your trivia. <laughs> 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 just in case that was... And, and that came up a few times, just in case that was one of the ones. So yeah, it but, spells yeah. magic. Just more, uh, more of J.K. Rowling's magic. Hmm. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having us. That was fun. Of course, yeah. And uh, thank you, everyone out there in listener land, for listening to another episode of Really True Fiction. May the force be with you. I'm with you, Luke.